Hello, I'm Cassie Gillespie, and you're listening to Welcome to the Field, a podcast produced by the University of Vermont's Child Welfare Training Partnership and the State of Vermont. Welcome to the Field is designed for child welfare workers, caregivers, and community partners. However, this season, we have been talking all about uncomfortable conversations. So even if you're not working or caregiving in the child welfare field, this season might be for you. On today's episode, Janine Beaudry is talking with Corey B. Best about child welfare with justice as the through line. This episode is our season finale, but be prepared. It's a cliffhanger. We'll be back in a few months with more from Corey. Okay, I'll pass it to Janine. Here we go. Thanks, Cassie. And hi, everyone. I'm Janine Beaudry, a training and coaching team lead with the Vermont Child Welfare Training Partnership. And I'm here to host what might be the last episode of Welcome to the Field. Don't worry, our podcast will continue, but we'll be changing our name. You are all in for such a treat. Today, I am so fortunate to be talking with Corey B. Best about child welfare with justice as the through line. Corey B. Best is foremost a dedicated father. Originally from Washington, D.C., Corey now resides in Florida, where he began his transformation into adaptive leadership training, systems building, authentic family engagement, racial justice, promoting protective factors, and highlighting quote-unquote good enough parenting for those impacted by the child welfare system. In 2020, Corey founded Mining for Gold, an organization seeking to shape new thinking within complex systems with the goal of rebuilding child and family serving systems that are responsive to sharing power among constituents with a laser focus on preventing and dismantling all forms of racism. And it was in 2022 that I experienced Corey speak about racial justice, liberation, and belonging in a jam-packed ballroom at a national conference. He connected to all of us, mostly white people working in human services fields, and enabled us to look squarely in the face of hundreds of years of racial violence and injustice while feeling his love and invitation to join him in healing that gaping societal wound that hurts us all. Soon after, the Vermont Child Welfare Training Partnership invited Corey and Mining for Gold to help guide our program to move forward in that healing process, one transformative anti-racist layer at a time. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Corey B. Best and open our conversation about child welfare with justice as the through line. Welcome, Corey, and thank you so much for joining me in this conversation today. Thank you for having me, Janine. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm looking forward to uh, what we discover together. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to start with something striking that you said at that summer 2022 conference. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is where racial justice goes to die. (laughs) Would you share more about what you meant? Absolutely. And, you know, history teaches us uh, uh, a lot about where we can go, right, Janine? And most recently, I'd say, let's say the past decade or so, we have grappled or at least attempted to grapple with what might we do in our institutions to create a semblance of justice, a semblance of representation, right, of people who are from, quote unquote, diverse populations. So to start there, I'm often curious about what diversity even means and who the population is that's 
quote unquote dominant or main or centered, right? And so if we begin there, we see that our institutions are uh, predominantly driven and run by white or at least monocultural people, right? And the question that I have learned to ask from a, a dear friend and mentor is when institutions uh, say they want to experience or uh, be consulted on DEI, the question you must ask is, what does diversity mean to that organization or that person? One. Then the second question is, what must you or what are you diversifying from? So if we if we sat there for a moment, Janine, and we're talking about race, racism, monocultural, and we're reluctant to say we're diversifying from uh, a white dominant Eurocentric perspective. And then you want to diversify into what? Right. So many folks who invest, right, they have uh, diverse portfolios, right? They mean want to get from something to something. But in this particular work, we notice that what's mainstay is that we want to maintain white dominant culture within an institution. And we want to sprinkle a little speck of your otherness in that. So we want to hire uh, a diversity, equity, and inclusion manager, director, who is 90%, if we look at the data today, 90% black and female to do the work of diversity. And what that often turns into is fried bread Friday, collard green Wednesday, <laughs> taco Tuesday, right? And, and, and so it's not, it's not starting from the basic premise that white bodies have been deemed the standard of measurement that, that all humans are measured against. And if you're outside of that, then you're deemed deviant, right? And so when we start there, we can really have a conversation about what does liberation, justice, and belonging look like within an institution? Or are you asking me to be included into a culture that's not going to change, hmm. a culture that only sees uh, humans or worth or value from one perspective, hmm. right? So... Uh, in my in my humble opinion, I say that it's where anti-racism goes to die and racial justice goes to die because we don't get uh, to the depths of the assault on the relationship, Janine. We don't get to the depths of the trauma that we all carry. We don't get to the depths of how to become mature enough to to handle some of the charges that that are associated with understanding uh, the invention of race and racism. So we don't want to be equitably including diverse people into the same old culture. We want to be looking at the culture itself. Right. You want to you want to you want to challenge the culture and the ideology and what built that culture, right? Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I, in your work with our program, you've elevated the work of Nicole Hannah-Jones. So a big part of how Mining for Gold is helping our program transform our culture is spurring us to hold ourselves accountable to educate ourselves and weave that new knowledge into how we communicate, how we connect, and how we do our work. Can you tell us more about 
the Mining for Gold movement that is rooted in racial justice, liberation, and belonging, and why your mantra is that culture must come before strategy. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I appreciate the the plug there. The work with your team has been fascinating, right? And I've learned uh, so much uh, along this particular journey. So the, to begin, MFG, uh, the, the cultivation of mining for gold has a basic premise. And the premise is that each and every one of us has proverbial ounces of gold, right, in us. So we recognize humanity in all people. And then when it comes to race and racism, right, we know that there is some uh, some dirt. And, you know, we've talked about dirty, dirty pain and clean pain based mm-hmm. on Resma's work. Right. Mm-hmm. And so in order to get to the clean pain, we have to sift aside some some dirt in order to mine for gold. And so I don't go into the training partnership digging for dirt because I'm going to find exactly what I'm looking for. Right. (laughs) I go into I go into mine for gold. Right. Because I recognize that with our indoctrination and arrangement in this world that we have a lot of uh, dirty thoughts, for, Mm. for lack of a better word. Right. About ourselves, about race, about justice, liberation and belonging. So I'll start with with creating you know, belonging is this within that word belonging, there's a being and there's a longing, right? Hmm. And so one thing that has happened, right, with colonization, capitalism, genocide is the assault on the relationship. That assault on the relationship has caused us to be segregated bodies, right? Hmm. And through that segregation, natural separation of people based on self-interest, we have uh, adopted some ways of thinking about our mastery, our agency, our ingenuity. And that prevents folk from feeling autonomous in their full being. Hmm. Right. I heard it said, Janine, and I'll, I'll get right to the to the mantra here in a moment. I heard a white colleague of mine say that, you know, us us white people were were really struggling once we learn uh, what racial oppression and terror means because we start to realize that with inter white racial categories, some of us are attempting to become more white, right? So so whiteness in this standard is impacting white people and some are starting to to see this right and this is where uh liberation work really comes in what is the freedom how do we have freedom to be who we are how do we have freedom to think the way we want freedom to resist in the way we want and that gives us hope for presencing justice right and so what justice is uh said in a simple way is proactive reinforcement of policies, ideas, practices. And with your group in the beginning, it's mostly about attitudes, actions that produce new power, right? Access to opportunities, treatment, and the impact for several of your team. Mm. Liberation, again, is is how do we use dreaming, culture, behavior, language, orientation, all of those things, right, to create culture, to build a culture of relationship, a culture of care fronting, right? Care fronting challenges in in our in my I'll, I'll speak for myself and my indoctrination in into systems. Right, I was taught that I, I move change, I make change happen. Hmm. Right, 
when things are a little bit tough and I have to hold change, that's when I want to move it, right? The pain is too great. I want to get rid of it and I want to sort of not feel what I need to feel. And in our culture building before strategy, it's it's coming from uh, Black Chicano and liberation movements of days of yore, where organizing was the mainstay, where organizing meaning building relationships, making it easy for people to say yes to, creating spaces that are brave, hmm. uh, not safe, because I think we're all physically safe, but in this work, we know that safety has often meant uh, that white bodies need to feel emotionally safe because they have entitlements to comfort, entitlements to ease, entitlements to um, access to other black bodies, right? And so we wanna make sure that we're creating bravery where people can lean in and build the right accountable relationships with one another. And that ultimately gets us to strategy. Mm -hmm. And sometimes in our work, we think about it in, in Mining for Gold, we think about what if culture building was the strategy, right? And so we're building culture that gets us to being able to do some things externally. And that's what we all want. Social outcomes that lead to being able to say, what are the positive impacts of our strategies on people? Hmm. And we query that as we go forward. So that's sort of where where it all came from. Uh, it's a it's a flipping of the script, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, not the linear way of of really doing things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love I love to hear care fronting and brave spaces in lieu of comfort, expecting that we're going to always have comfort, particularly if we're really taking a look at ourselves and wanting to interrogate how we do what we do, how we think what we think, how we are with each other, what our connections are. I love the idea of centering accountable relationships and this thought of culture, culture building being the strategy. I love Absolutely. that. Absolutely. <laughs> so we're, we're all increasingly aware that the contextual meaning and the resulting impact of language matters and plays a central role in culture. Language is a constantly evolving thing, so we must also constantly be evolving along with it. Um, in our work together, you've raised the use of the phrase working in the field as it pertains to child welfare. What meaning does that phrase evoke and what impact might it have, particularly within the context of child welfare? Yeah, so within the context, this is a this is an interesting conversation because one, Janine, I think the the impact it has already been felt, right? So I don't I don't know if we I think what we'll see is the impact of the use field when it pertains to child welfare workers. Mm. Uh, it, it will continue to evoke invoke a level of uh, repeated harm that comes mm -hmm. from either memory, right, or comes from uh, more present experiences. And so what I mean by memory is that many folk have not come to uh, grips with the fact that racism, one, predates race, hmm. right? So we utilize racial categorization to justify embedded racism as, as a set of ideologies, protocol, and, and practices. And so what I mean exactly when it comes to uh, the field as a term 
is that the field is known as a place. Some folks, you have field of medicine, field of psychology, field of education. It's big, broad body of work, right? Big, broad body of work. So we're we're utilizing the term field to describe one, a big body ocean of work. And that may seem quite benign, right? But then when you look at the invention and the development of systems and institutions, and you look back at the institution of slavery, chattel slavery, right? We, we know what, where people were uh, in bondage, in captivity, working on forced labor camps, AKA plantations, that was known as the field. And so mm. as we grow in our contemporary knowledge, we see where managers, directors, leaders are positioned within the structure of an institution, like mm. the physical space. And then we look at what the workforce calls themselves, right? Field workers, right? Mm. And then when we look at some of our states across the country, many of our workforce are black, right? Mm. And so you think about who's on the quote unquote front line, who's in the field doing what bidding for whom. Mm. And so when I think about uh, the the institution of slavery, uh, field work, field hands, servants, right? And I think about who was in positional power that governed, dictated and utilized punitive measures to ensure productivity. Hannah Nicole Jones talks about that in uh, American Capitalism and Plantation in the in the Master's Class series that, mm-hmm. that you, you listen to. So we, we know that uh, the field itself uh, connotes for black and brown bodies, right? And, and, and I, I, I don't want to speak for my indigenous brothers and sisters, but I'll say for those who come from uh, lineages of uh, chattel slavery, right? The field feels quite harmful. It feels sort of dismissive of my full humanity. And the the other nuance here is the internalized piece to this, Janine, because it's not as if in our country today that black and brown workforce, that that they're also saying, I'm a field worker, right? They're also saying that I am out in the field when we say community. So maybe it's a shift in reclaiming Mm -hmm. humanity. So if I'm working in community, am I really working in a field? Mm. Why not say I'm working with a family in their community, right? It it will lessen the harm. It's not uh, a language change that's going to absolutely just propel us to justice, but it is a step. When we can understand why we use the term, where the term came from, and what's the service serviceability of that term in today's world. Yeah. Thank you. That's given us a great opportunity because, of course, here we are right now talking on Welcome to the Field podcast. So our program is going to take that up, right? The the use of that phrase as the title of the podcast, we're... Uh, Stay tuned. We've got more coming about that. Um, but I, I, it's so interesting because it takes uh, it takes something as simple as a word or a phrase, and 
allows us to open that up to not only what do I mean when I use it, and maybe even I could dive more into the history of why I use it in that context to begin with. It also opens up the possibility that the way I use that is not how it's impacting anybody who might be hearing me use it. And both sides of it are important to take up. Absolutely. And, you know, you make a, a really valuable point, I think, for us all to consider when it comes to to, to understanding one what what racial justice and, and healing is and also requires. Mm. Uh, and, and a part of that, what I'm hearing, Janine, you say is that it may not it may not matter at this point if you, Janine, are personally impacted by the use of the word field. Right. It may not matter at that point because now you have taken uh, a step, an action to see things from the other side. And by seeing things from the other side, you're now attaching your liberation and their humanity together, right? So you're seeing your humanity and other folk, right? Without having to ever walk in their quote unquote proverbial shoes, right? Right. But we can, we can apply empathy and that that application of empathy gets us to sort of looking in the mirror a little bit and having uh, people be the mirror for you. Thank you. It has me thinking about the invention of racial categorization. So race is real and race has been invented. So just take that kind of juxtaposition up in your mind and see what you can do with that. But, <laughs> but right, so, but, you know, on the topic of, you know, loaded topic, really, of the census, right? So one of the ways that we find um, kind of percentages of, of people within certain areas. So according to the 2022 census, Vermont is 94% white, 0.4% Native American or Alaskan, 1.5% Black or African American, 2% Asian, just over 2% Latinx or Hispanic, just above 0% Native Hawaiian or other Pacific Islander, and about 2% two or more races. So, you know, as we kind of decontextualize, right, like th those are some numbers that give some description of Vermont. What type of self-work accompanied by deliberate action can white bodies take in this state that is one of the whitest in the nation? Well, I hope that we we are intentional about this this particular piece being sort of left in and, and people can can hear and, and feel. So I want to I want to back up. So we do sure. some of this work uh, in our group as you read those numbers there was a, a weight, uh, a, an overwhelming sense of fear for the non-white bodies who live in Vermont. One, if I can just be honest about the weight and the charge of, of that, mm. right? And the, the other thing, if I, if I touch it a little more, is we're living in what's called the United States of America that was formerly the 13 colonies, that all we know today, even through land acknowledgements and what have you, is that this land that we walk, live, play on uh, 
was stolen through forced assimilation, genocide, right? Mm-hmm. Forced Christianity, all of those things. And, you know, you said to, to juxtapose race being real and a social construct. Hmm. I want us to, to, to just hone in for one second and just hear you say 4% Native American. 0.4%. Right. 0.4% Native American. We must ask ourselves if this is native land, hmm. native indigenous bodies were here before European colonization and settlers. What happened to Native American bodies? And so we we live in a world, Janine, where native indigenous invisibility and anti-blackness is rampant, mm. right? Rampant. So I, I wanted to 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 lift up that that the weight of that for me uh, was was huge. And, and so your your question for ninety four percent of uh, the folk in that state, deliberate action is to to begin to to one inquire and understand why Vermont is as monoculture as it is. Why is Vermont as white as it is when it comes to racial categorization, right? And I also believe that there are some linear steps that are nonlinear actions in between that folk can take. And, and, and I'll start with, the, with the, more, the more heady things, right? And, and then I'll drill down just a little bit. So all of this work, for those who are uh, involved in understanding themselves in the context of uh, America is should be looked at in the service of what, right? In the service of yourself, right? So, so I want white bodies to understand, one, that racial justice, liberation, and belonging is not uh, only a mindset, but it's also not something that we're doing for black, brown, 4% Native American folk and the 1.5% Black and or African American folk that live in Vermont. We're not doing it for that, right? You must first understand that you are doing this for your own humanity, right? That's number one, right? Your own liberation, your own healing, your own understanding why you are in the sorts of relationships you're in based on this invention. That's first. And the other thing is to to think about some phases to the work. And I just want to note that I'm I'm bringing in uh, an, an an Asian uh, scholar, Daryl Wing Sue, in this part of the conversation. So I don't want to uh, I, I don't steal anybody's work, right? I, he's somebody that I studied from, and I noticed that he appeals to to white bodies, right? And so I want to use what works. For, for white bodies to, to, to talk to them. Because one, Janine, the, the answers to your questions have been asked, answered for several hundred years now, right? Stop hurting us, do things, right? To understand the problem 
and create solutions that equal the magnitude of said problem. Obviously, those answers weren't good enough, right? Probably because they came from a different worldview. And so self-interest is always the the anchor of this thing. And so when we look at some phases, you can think about naivete, right? Understand uh, where you might be naive in your own understanding. Conformity is another thing that we want to, we want white-bodied individuals to, to understand. Uh, the dissonance, right? And that dissonance is a necessary part of grappling right to truly feel some of these intrusive thoughts and understanding about how you have been formed in this world and also right and also understand that you didn't create the world you didn't create the systems that you that that you were that that are here we were born into them and some of these systems were born uh, and, and generated and created to advantage white-bodied individuals resistance and immersion a lot of introspection has to occur, right, for that self-work. As we get into this phase of the work, we are now developing a more positive racial identity, right? See, I say that intentionally, Janine, because here I am, a black man, uh, proud of my blackness. I know my black skin has never been anybody's problem. It's the ideology that's the issue here. So I'm saying the same thing to you white-bodied individuals. Your skin is never the problem, right? It's the ideology that's been the issue. So we look so myopic at the issues we fail to, as Resma says, punch up, right? As, you know, to punch up. And this gets us into this integrative awareness. And ultimately, we want to make uh, not not just verbal commitments to anti-racist actions, but tangible commitments, seeking out, uh, you know, anybody who's had any interracial experiences, right? Being open to discussing racial issues with uh, acquaintances of color, uh, expressing positive racial messages to family members, friends, and coworkers, uh, standing against racist comments and jokes, joining or forming community or professional groups that work on behalf of multiculturalism and anti-racism, planning, coordinating, conducting, attending anti-racist form, forums or otherwise with interested parties. And, you know, some things that that, that Daryl Wing Sue does not talk about is understanding white body supremacy and trauma. Right. And so. Mm. That's critically important to white bodies healing. And sometimes, Janine, in, in a state, so I'm just looking at the, the, the numbers, it's a beautiful opportunity for white bodies to do their own level of work with each other, the healing work, the accountability work, the affinity work, uh, the understanding trauma work, because there's very little black and brown bodies in Vermont that what should create any level of unnecessary discomfort, hmm. false fragility, right? And so uh, there's beauty when like people do trauma and healing work together. Other white bodies can hold one another accountable. Other white bodies can teach each other how to be mature. Uh, other white bodies can help white bodies understand that shame and guilt are secondary emotions, right? That have no place in justice and liberation, right? White bodies can also help each other become 
big. And when I say big, Janine, I'm not talking about centering oneself. Not that kind of big, yeah. right? <laughs> That's already built in. <laughs> I'm talking about the kind of big where you are able to withstand the information you're taking in, uh, the facts of our indoctrination, and to not to not allow shame and guilt to be your default. They are intricately linked, but there are some delineations here. They are they're different, right? And one, you know, shame comes from this place of how we degrade ourselves is I'm seeing myself as I think the world should see me. So I'm a bad person, right? I did yeah. a bad thing, right? Uh, I, I just must say that hatred and uh, dislike are different than racism. Hmm. They're byproducts, but we, we, we have to understand what racism is and is not. And so some of the, the things that are derived from guilt feelings to know that the number one, the primary emotion when it comes to guilt is fear, hmm. right? And so we often bypass talking about white bodies, what I'm afraid of, right? Is that I'm afraid of unmasking ugly secrets about race and racism. And I'll say that's also a part of developing a positive racial identity, Janine, because when I can put down all of the negative things I may know that I've thought, the negative things that I've said, the negative things I've been complicit in upholding, then I can understand where those things no longer serve me, right? Mm. In the quest for glimpsing liberation. But it requires a level of honesty with other people, right? To, to help and support the healing journey. So those are just some, uh, some, some things that I would consider uh, for for folk in Vermont, uh, recognizing that we might think that we don't have a problem with racism because of the percentile of non-white people. Mm. But when we start with the first question, yeah. right, who's deemed human and standard of measurement, then we have somewhere to go. Right. It's funny. So you're you're talking about trauma and the word that kept coming to my mind is maladaptation you know right it's and yeah. and isn't that the first <laughs> first step really in being able to then figure out how you can shift how you can change how you can grow into the person who may now not be in imminent danger is to see where you grew into this maladaptive way of being maladaptive way of thinking maladaptive way of engaging with people and it sounds like that is what you're touching upon here right like opening your eyes <laughs> noticing what you haven't noticed before and then being able to say oh ah wow i that uh, is what it is and uh, it's not serving me and it's not serving us anymore so it's definitely something to take up and see if I can't shift, right? Yeah, I mean, and that 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 malady was given to us, right? Mm. And so there there is a uh, a dis ease, mm. right? There's a there's a dis ease, yeah. And even how we respond, react, the comfort we need, the things we don't want to say or look at, from being colorblind to utilizing colorblind methodologies in child welfare. If I don't talk about race, if I don't see race, then mm -hmm. it's no problem, mm -hmm. right? But I, I believe we we really know different today, yeah. 
right? Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 striking if you take it within the context of racialized arrangement. It's so obvious. Ninety four percent white is so very much a racialized arrangement. Yes, it is. So digging into that, right? That's step one. <laughs> step one. I mean, the 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 why, and, mm-hmm. and, and so in my in my work, I'm, I, I'll, I'll say with with confidence, you'll begin to see, we've begun to see mm-hmm. that it's no longer about what people have have done or avoided, right? It's more about what has happened to us all and how we sort of internalize these things. And in that internalization, we begin to take on uh, forms based on how our, I mean, at a really cellular level, right? We've been changed. By racism. So some of us have come away with a lot of privileges and some have had a lot of privileges and resources kept. We've all been harmed. That's the major connection is in this uh, culture of racism. We're all harmed. It's a it's a malady that we all need to be stepping into to undo that harm. Yeah. And I I mean, I know this may not be the most popular thing, but another white colleague of mine, she says that, you know, we often think about racism as like this pejorative thing. You know, I, mm-hmm. I'm so afraid of being called a racist or what have you. Well, you know, Janine, you personally can call me a name, but I can deal with that individually. But you put on a child welfare badge, you're bringing a whole institution with a lot of history of things behind that. Right now, I don't want you to call me the name, Janine, but I'm just saying that it, we can leave the negative words out of our vocabulary. We can treat people nice, right? And we'll still have racist outcomes because what you said a minute ago, racism predates race. If we don't do anything about the ideology, right? We'll Mm -hmm. continue to see the same outcomes and we'll continue to see Vermont at a 94% uh, white racial cat arrangement in the state. Mm -hmm. And what what my colleague said, and and I, I definitely call her a friend now. She says, you know, it, it took me a while to understand where my anger needed to be projected. Yeah. Right. Because often I, I didn't realize that I was powerless in changing something. And so when conversations got tough, my anger went to the person, not the ideology. Right. So right. it looks like Janine and Corey got a beef. Right. And, and it's not even about us, right? It's about this ideology. And she says what she started to do was figure out how she can stop being angry at black people for speaking the truth and start getting angry at racism for making her a racist. Hmm. That's pretty powerful. And I think it's an opening for people to be more active and walk away from that, uh, you know, deer in the headlights feeling that shame gives us. Right. Like yes. I'm stuck here. It's all bad. There's nothing I could do to make it less bad. And I'm just going to wait for it to stop feeling bad or or move away from the thing that makes it feel bad instead of walking toward the light. Right. Walking towards some positive change that I do have a role in. OK, so we have a lot now to think about, a lot on our plates to take in and digest I hate to leave people hanging, but I do believe we need to take a little time to think about all the things that you've shared. Um, So I'm going to say thank you for now, and uh, I can't wait to welcome you back to part two of this conversation, Corey. 
Absolutely. And I, I really appreciate the moment to to pause and maybe do a little reflection there as well, uh, Janine, because one part of the work is we, we don't have to to eat everything in one sitting. Right. Mm-hmm. So I look forward to to the next time and when we return to the conversation. All right. Thank you. And thank you for listening to this conversation about child welfare with justice as the through line. If you, like me, want to hear more of what Corey B. Best has to share, you're in luck. Corey will be speaking with Vermont's very own Department for Children and Families Family Services Division Deputy Commissioner, Erica Radke, later this spring. Corey and Erica will be discussing the child and family support system that we want to build here in Vermont and nationwide. You don't want to miss that conversation, so keep an ear out for more information. Corey also hosts his own podcast called audio nuggets. And of course, each is pure gold. You can find them all as well as a trove of great information about Corey's and Mining for Gold's work at miningforgoldcommunity.com. And if you haven't yet listened to our November 2021 three-part miniseries, Race and Racism in Child Welfare, hosted by Tabitha Moore with special guest Dr. Ken Hardy, you definitely want to check that out. While you're there, please dive into the rest of Welcome to the Field, Seasons 1 through 3. Welcome to the Field is produced by the University of Vermont's Child Welfare Training Partnership and the State of Vermont. Our theme music is composed and performed by local band Brick Drop, and our sound production and engineering is brought to you by Egan Media Productions. We'd also like to give a special thank you to our in-house technical production assistant, Emma Baird. For Welcome to the Field, I'm Cassie Gillespie, and we'll see you next time.